Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning has gone completely virtual. We've taken both our Level 1 and Level 2 courses and loaded them onto an online platform so you can digest the power of this amazing operating system from the comfort of your home. We combine the video experience with live Zoom labs to bring all the information into practical application so you will totally understand how to use this language of common practice to bring the worlds of therapy and performance together in one powerful practice. We are on a mission to help human performance practitioners have a more fulfilling practice and live their best lives while serving others. You can register for our complete online experience at reconditioninghq.com and if you use the coupon code LYM50, you can get $50 off the purchase price of the complete online experience. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Rachel Balkovic. Rachel has just entered her first year as a minor league hitting coach with the New York Yankees. She is the first woman to hold that title in the history of professional baseball and is joining three other women that will be in uniform this season in various roles. She joined the Yankees after completing her second master's degree in biomechanics and statistics in the Netherlands. While in Amsterdam, she served as an assistant hitting coach for the Netherlands national softball and baseball programs and went on to complete her research at the world-leading baseball performance research facility in Seattle Dryland Baseball. Previously, she was in several roles with the Houston Astros Strength Conditioning Department. She completed the 2018 season with their AA affiliate Corpus Christi Hooks and served as the Latin American coordinator in her first two years with the organization. The first time she made history in professional baseball was in 2014 when she was hired as the first full-time female strength conditioning coach in the MLB in the role of minor league strength conditioning coordinator for the St. Louis Cardinals. She also worked in an apprenticeship role in a number of other performance organizations. The Omaha native is a former NCAA Division I softball catcher and has a special interest in organizational culture and behavioral psychology in relation to coaching. I'm truly pleased and honored to have her on the show today. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. That was quite the intro. (laughs) You you hail from Omaha. Um, Growing up as a little girl, what did you dream of being when you grew up? I, uh, when I was 10, this should give you an exact, I mean, we could stop the podcast after I tell this story. (laughs) So perfect. Um, when I was 10, we did like the kind of, what do you want to be when you grow up assignment? And I, I said that I wanted to be the first ever female kicker in the NFL. Wow. So I wish I could go back in that moment and just understand like, how did I even think about that when I was 10? And not just that I wanted to play in the NFL, because you could have said, oh, well, I was largely influenced by, you know, the Huskers were in the heyday and back-to-back championships. And I was largely influenced by wanting to impress my dad, I think, with the football thing. Um, But I said I wanted to be the first female. And I don't even, I don't know where that came from. I wish I knew. So uh, that should tell you everything you need to know about me. Um, But yeah, that's what I wanted to do when I was 10. And when you said it, did you believe it? Did you believe you could do that? Yeah. Yeah, because I was, I was always, um, I didn't, the, my parents wouldn't let me play football. Um, 
but I would go in our backyard and kick uh, field goals, you know, fake field goals. And I was training for it, you know, when I was 10 and I believed it because I was always, when I was a kid, I was very like athletic and strong for a young girl and was beating the boys at everything and that kind of stuff. So I think I really believed it. Yeah. Mm. And what sort of inspired your course of direction from an educational standpoint then was how did you get, well, you know, I'm going to re- reconstruct that. Why didn't you make the NFL then? <laughs> I mean, my parents wouldn't let me play football. So that kind of <laughs> that put a little damper on it. And then I, I found softball and was really good at it. And it was just my outlet for being, I think having an athletic prowess, which I put a lot of stock in. Um, and I quickly like picked up on that and, um, the Olympics were going on, uh, pretty formative. Like the softball Olympic team was pretty like prominent when I was like in my formative years and like sport. And so, uh, I could easily like get an outlet for self-efficacy and self-worth and stuff in softball. And so that's kind of what took me, yeah, I played a lot of sports, but softball was my main one. Um, that's kind of what took me really to my career path is just playing high level collegiate sports. And, um, I'll never forget. I had started out psychology my freshman year and I was bored within five minutes. And one of my friends who was a basketball player, she was writing a strength program. And I was like, what are you doing? She's like, Oh, it's my homework. And I was like, your homework, like, this is a homework assignment. I, I love working out. I love the gym. Uh, I always did when I was a young girl, even, uh, just going with my dad and, um, as soon as I knew that like exercise science and strength and conditioning was a major, I was like all in. So I switched mm-hmm. to exercise science and ended up being a strength coach. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of, I mean, is- just my involvement in sports for sure. Um, it's kind of what got me into that. And like I said, my dad taking me to the gym when I was a little girl and letting me do whatever the heck I did there. I don't know, but at least just exposing me to that and didn't tell me that I didn't belong there. And, yeah. Was your father a big workout guy? That's where you yeah. were sort of inspired from that. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. He, he had like a weight bench in the basement and, you know, some, all of the men's health, you know, and prevention magazines and all this stuff. And, um, you think back as a kid, like you just pick up these little things that are going on around you. And I, I remember doing like abs with my dad in the basement when he was working out, I would just go down and do what he was doing. Cause I wanted to hang out with my dad. Um, and he was always running and stuff. He's just really active and from a sports background, I guess. Um, and so, like I said, when he finally, I guess my parents probably just got enough money. They got a membership at the YMCA and he would let me come with him to the gym. And I would just like, again, I don't know what I did. I think I probably just hung out and like messed around, but that's not really important at age 11. It's just mm-hmm. the fact that he brought me and I would sit on the machines and do whatever. And then, you know, just the fact that I thought I was going to the gym with him was important. Did you, you have brothers and sisters? I have two sisters. Yeah. And how were they influential in you or were they different to you or were you guys all sort of cut from the same swath in some way? Yeah, we're cut from the same cloth. (laughs) My (laughs) older sister, uh, I always like to say like my older sister is more successful than me, even though she hasn't, you know, been in the New York times, but she, uh, she's a nurse recruiter. So she places travel nurses all over the country mm. and she's literally the best in the country at that job. And, and definitely like wins award from her company all the time. She's incredible. She's a just go getter, very aggressive. 
played soccer in college. Just, yeah, we're very similar. So our parents raised us a certain way type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my little sister could have played soccer in college, but went nursing and decided to focus on school. Um, but yeah, so she's, we are all very similar. I'm the middle child. Um, and we were very competitive and, you know, sports and all that. We're, we're very close now, but we're very cutthroat as kids, I guess you could say. <laughs> so, well, I'm, I'm kind of curious because I thought, uh, you know, I read um, a little bit more off your webpage and something that really struck me and actually pivots off of what you just said about your sister, which I think is very enlightening to a degree, your recognition of her success, even though, as you said, she didn't, she hasn't made the New York Times, so to speak, is there's, there's an obvious humbleness, but at the same time, uh, a confidence in who you are without even having met you. And I really liked the first paragraph in, in your sort of quote where it said, the worst possible thing that could happen to me, I guess, is that I could look back at my life and say that the only thing I did for the world was to make a few athletes stronger in the gym and better at hitting at baseball. My, by trade, I'm a hitting coach, but in reality, I'm a student, athlete, minimalist, feminist, and nomad. Those are all things that I res- resonate with long before my career and will be with me long after my career in sports is over. Mm-hmm. I found that incredibly enlightened for somebody who was kind of earlier in her career in some sense, some sense, you don't yet usually hear that sort of thing from people until they're probably my age and starting to think about what they did back in some ways. Where does that come from? Sort of your recognition that success isn't so much about the arrival at some position or what you do and, and more about, you know, who you are as a human being. Matrix Fitness is one of the largest commercial fitness brands in the world and one of the fastest growing in the industry. Their equipment and programs are used by athletes and coaches at all levels globally. COVID-19 has changed and will change so many things. During these uncertain times, Matrix's team of engineers have quickly put together its free home workout app and youth at home workout programs. With its launch just a couple of weeks ago, they now have first responders, pro athletes, and average folks using the guide to help them with their daily movement. This is a great example of how Matrix strives to be the best fitness company in the world to serve people and communities is their goal. You can download their free app and see additional resources at matrixtotalsolutionssupport.com. That is https www.matrixfitnesssolutionssupport.com. Uh, I mean, yeah, I just think like my journey has been really tumultuous um, in many ways. And I think that, you know, I I always like to say like, I've been broke, I've been fired, I've been broke again. I've been, you know, people have liked me, they've not liked me. People already, you know, the, the Twitter verse has all the opinions and horrible things being said about me, me personally, not just, Mm. you know, women and sports, but like, direct shots at me. And I just have to, you just got to know who you are because otherwise you're going to, that is going to ruin you. So when things happen where it's like you're broke, you're fired, you're, you get divorced, you got to move somewhere, you got your, whatever your and your identity is wrapped into what you're, is being taken away from you. You're screwed. Mm -hmm. So I don't really like this whole COVID thing, you know, and people are like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Your first season with the Yankees, it's canceled. And I'm like, I'm good. I'm just, I'm still me. I don't, I feel like I'm just as happy as ever because I'm not putting my self-worth in the Yankees, not even, not even given everything that just happened with 
being hired as the first full-time hitting coach and whatever, very little of my self-worth is put into that. So Mm. it's very easy for me to still remain happy with who I am and what I'm doing because I know who I am as a person. Mm. Um, And when things are taken away from you unexpectedly or unfairly or whatever, you're forced to go, wow, who am I without that? You know, and a lot of people, a lot of people can't step outside of themselves and go, they, they, that's when they get upset. Well, I shouldn't have been fired or I can't believe she divorced me or, um, I lost all this money. I can't believe it happened. It's like they, they get upset about it. I don't, it doesn't even phase me. I'm not upset about it. And I, I can't be convinced to be upset about even something like COVID canceling my first season as a Yankee. It's like, there's so many people that are worse off than me and I feel great about who I am. And no matter what happens, if, if all of baseball was canceled forever, I still be me and I'll find something else to do that's fulfilling and something else to do that I can make an impact in the world. Well, that's beautiful. What was, do you remember uh, maybe a first example in your life where you kind of recognized that in yourself that you, there was a, something that happened and you kind of had to dust off and just recognize that and who you were. Yeah, I was in, as as an athlete, which I think is a pretty common experience. The, the common experience is we all go through the shit. The uncommon experience is to be able to reflect and grow from it quickly, mm-hmm. not 15 years from now, but like quickly. You know, like not because everyone looks back 15 years from now and goes, "Wow, that's the best thing that ever happened to me." But it, what if in the moment or right after something really negative happens, you go, "This is good." I don't know how, I don't know why, I don't know when, I don't know what, but it's going to turn out for the best. And I'm going to learn a lot from this. The trick is to be, be able to do it sooner. So when I was an athlete, I, uh, I had what was called the yips. So for anyone out there listening who doesn't know what that is, it's really, really common in baseball and softball where you kind of just have, it's game anxiety. It's, it's uh, performance anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't throw the ball back to the pitcher as a catcher. Like I was overthrowing the pitcher and I, but at the time mental skills wasn't a thing and they were trying to change my mechanics. I had no idea what was going on. I was like, what in the, I couldn't throw the ball when I've done this for my entire life. And I was known for having a really good arm, very laser precise arm. And all of a sudden I couldn't even throw the ball back to the pitcher. And I just was dealing with anxiety as a freshman athlete. And that never really got better to the point where I could have a, any kind of a successful career at all mm-hmm. and ended up not even playing my senior year of college, which for me, I was like, look, when I was 10, I wanted to, I wanted to play professional football. Like my entire identity and my entire life was I'm an athlete. This is how I, this is how I get my worth. I'm good at it. I work hard at it. I love it. And it just was like gone. Like I was, it was very quick, uh, descent to like bench player and like no chance of playing. So I lost my identity, which is very common again, right? This is super common athletes get to a certain level of of play and not everyone gets to be in the hall of fame. Everyone gets released at some point in their career. Most people get released or they get cut or they get injured or whatever. So there's this transition out of sports. And I basically realized like at the end of my career, I was able to become a leader on the team from the bench where I was able to counsel my teammates in other areas. And I knew that I could contribute in other ways. And it wasn't easy when I left, but pretty quickly after that, I was like, wow, if that never happened, like if I never went through that struggle, I would not have the perspective that I do now of losing that identity and understanding that I have to be good with me Hmm. and not just my stats on the computer. And 
how, you know, how far I can hit the ball and how good I am at a sport. Like that's so, so fickle. It's so fragile. Hmm. So I was able to pretty quickly, I can remember probably in my master's degree. So one to two years later as a young woman going, God, if that had never happened, I would never be at LSU, which is where I, I really kicked off my career as a coach. So, and also now, even I look back and I go, I, I'm glad that I had that massive struggle and really emotionally painful time because I can relate to players that are going through that and it's so common and no one wants to talk about it. Mm. Why do you think people don't want to talk about that? It's embarrassing, mm. you know, especially when your identity is in it. It's, it's embarrassing when, when your identity is wrapped into something and then it doesn't go very well. It's really embarrassing. Mm. If you are, this is a very uh, surface obvious example, somebody who is posting all over Instagram about their great husband. Oh, my husband is by, Oh, all these roses. And he's just the best. And their entire identity that they're putting out to the world is like, I'm married to this guy. I have this great relationship. Look at me. I'm taking pride in this. My entire identity is in this. And then all of a sudden she finds out that he's cheating on her. Hmm. That's embarrassing. Because you put all of your stock in one, you've all, you, all of your worth, and not just your own personal, like, this is what I think of as my worth, but what you put out to the world is what's important to you, it just crumbles. And then who are you? So if you can't begin with yourself, it's like you put all your worth in this other area, and then when it goes bad, it's embarrassing. Because you've told everyone that this is your passion in life, and this is what you, you know... That's why I think it's funny. Like when people are like, I'm so sorry about the Yankees. I'm like, I don't even, if you look at my social media, it'd be pretty hard to tell that I even work for the Yankees. <laughs> I don't, you know, and, and that's, it's nothing against the Yankees. It's, it's about me. Mm-hmm. I can't put my worth in that because COVID hits and I'm not, I'm, I mean, I'm still working for them, but I'm not putting on the uniform every day and putting on the hat and going out and working with players on the field. So that'd be pretty embarrassing if I was talking about how doing all this stuff, my entire worth is in there and then COVID hits and the season's canceled. And what else do I have my worth in? Mm-hmm. So what, what, what have you, what has become your definition for yourself as for success? What I can do for other people. Mm. Very simply. It's like what I can, um, there's a quote by bug, Winster Fuller. It's what is my job on the planet? What is it that I know something about? that needs doing, but if I don't do it, it probably isn't going to get done. (laughs) And that's, that's it. It's like, I don't know why, I don't know how, but somehow I was put on this earth and now I'm a hitting coach for the Yankees. (laughs) And and like, there's not a lot of people out there that are going to be like that, but also on top of that, and I'm not trying to like two my horn, but my personality, my ability to connect with people, like my ability to speak, uh, my willingness to speak and be, out front. Um, cause some people will get in this job and go, I don't want, I don't want anything on me and whatever. And I get that, but I also think it's a, a travesty to do that because there are young women that need to see it. Mm-hmm. that need to hear my voice that need to see me in pictures that need to see me in interviews. They need to see it. And so I feel like it's my calling and also my responsibility to do that for the world. Is that, um, heavy or is that, uh, empowering? Empowering. Heavy mm-hmm. some days, but empowering empowering 95% of the time. 
It's cool. I'm going to read you. I do my uh, little thing with my astrology book because it's a book written by a woman named Linda Joyce, who's from New York, actually. She's an astrologist and combined numerology and astrology. And I discovered this book. I found my purpose in it. So I read it to everybody on my podcast. So you're July 5th, right? So you are a cancer five. So your purpose is to share your sensitivity, your keen perceptions, your unique insights with others so that you may experience new ideas and solutions to your problems while at the same time expanding your sense of self. Work spares us from three evils, boredom, vice, and need. Voltaire. Cancer fives can always fit one more thing into their schedule. Workaholic and restless, everything must be in motion. They are busy as a bee, the killer kind and what they kill is you limits are a must they plan to slow down but most things stay in their head mercury makes Mm -hmm. them analyze everything to an extreme still nobody gets things done like cancer fives slowing down is a necessity and when they see the results of their sharing they'll never doubt the power of unity it's not so much how busy you are but why you were busy the the bee is praised and the mosquito is swatted marie o'connor The bee is praised and the mosquito is swatted. That's good. Yeah. (laughs) You love traveling. Where does that come from in you? Uh, The deepest origins, my father um, was, he worked for American Airlines for 35 years. And Mm. he was a customer service manager, so not a glorious job, but just uh, definitely was able to provide for the family and that kind of thing. Um, We were very, like, dead middle of the road, middle class. Um, but because he worked there and because he, to give you an idea again of my father, he missed, I think three days of work in 35 years. Hmm. So, um, he's a pretty, you know, hardworking guy. So he would win all these awards for attendance for perfect attendance every year. So we got free standby tickets and we went on these trips as a family. We probably would not have gone on if we didn't have that. Um, so we were traveling, we were on planes and we were seeing parts of the country. We went to Turks and Caicos and Puerto Rico and a couple of like the traditional, like American getaway trips. Um, so we were traveling all growing up and just being on a plane and doing that was pretty normal. And then moving away from, for college, moving to New Mexico, also traveling different parts of the country, being from Nebraska, like going to, uh, Colorado, you're like, Oh my God. Matt, like Mount, it's like going, even going to like the ugliest beach on the Gulf of Mexico, you're like, it's a beach. Like, this is incredible. So everything was, I'm, I'm in awe of everything, which is kind of cool. So we grow up in the Midwest, you appreciate all of this incredible scenery. So I think just that, and then I, I have always craved learning about other cultures. And at, at this point now, my travel is really directed at like expansion it's not really relaxation. It's like, where can I go? That's probably really uncomfortable for me. Hmm. Um, where people aren't going to be speaking English, where I could get lost, where I'm not going to, you know, when I travel, I try to go to small towns where an Airbnb allows you to do this. Cause there's not, there's not a hotel in, you know, Nantua, France, which is a place that I went last summer. There's not, there's no hotel there, but there's a few people who have figured out Airbnb and have put up, you know, so their room on Airbnb in the middle of nowhere in France, I'm going to go there because then you really get to feel the culture of what the country is like. But if you go to Paris or you go to Bangkok, those are just like, you know, American mm-hmm. cities with a 
with a French accent or a, or an Asian accent, you're just like, this is not really experiencing the culture of the country. So I have a craving for being uncomfortable, getting a different perspective. We're so privileged. I mean, like it's a hot topic these days with white privilege, but like American privilege period is also real, no matter what race or gender you are. So going to, you know, the middle of the jungle or going to a remote village in a, in a small area, you know, or a very remote area of the world, it gives you so much perspective on the duty and the responsibility you have in the world to do something good. Like Mm. we have so much opportunity. There's so much to be had here. And you go to other parts of the world and you just go, wow, like, wow, you, even if you wanted to, you couldn't do, even if you had the most drive, the most will, the most discipline, you don't have the same opportunities that I have. Mm-hmm. Tell me about an outcome experience that really struck you from a, tri- a trip that you did. Uh, yeah, I just go back to, I, I went to Laos, um, which is east of Thailand, in case anyone out there is wondering, because I, I really didn't know exactly where it was geographically, honestly. So I went to Laos and uh, I went to a small village that is not even on Google Maps. I couldn't tell you how to get there if I tried. And I found this village because there was a uh, school for English there. And I found the website and booked a ticket and just... Flew into a small airport, took a three-hour bus ride through God knows where uh, to get to this little village. And, you know, there was, a, there was two light bulbs in the entire, like, farmhouse, basically, that we stayed on. By some miracle, there was Wi-Fi because they were a school, you know, an English school. So they had, they had gotten Wi-Fi there. Um, and the village was very interesting because they had just gotten Internet within the past, I think, seven years. So we're two decades, maybe three now, into having Internet. And they're seven years. And so, and it's bad internet. It's just, it's the most remote like place I've ever been. I stayed there for three weeks and taught English, but you know what? I was scared to go there. And after being there for three weeks, I didn't want to leave because it was so peaceful and so communal and really just like safe and neighbors cared about each other. Everyone knows each other. I was the only a white person in the entire village and they were just so welcoming wanted to teach me everything wanted to learn from me and I just was like this is this is what a real community is and it we don't have that in the states we do not have that in the United States of America mm. maybe in some small remote mountain villages but pretty much anywhere you're locking your door you're concerned if somebody knocks on your door in the middle of the day you're like who's at the door you know, you like, your like hair stands up, but like, how messed up are we? You know, I, I went there thinking that I was going to teach these people English and, you know, give them the English they need to, to be a functioning person in society. And I left feeling bad for teaching them English and they want to be Westernized because they see Instagram. And I'm like, you guys have the secret to happiness. Mm. So that was probably the most formidable experience in travel. It was definitely the most uncomfortable I've ever been uh, at first. I was absolutely terrified sleeping. Yeah, it just was very uncomfortable experience. But by the end, I was just, my world was flipped upside down. That was almost three years ago. I need to go back. 
That's cool. The embracing discomfort piece where did you, have you always had that or is that something you've discovered as you've gotten older that you, you need or you value that more? Um, probably I've always had that to some extent. Another little like window into Rachel Balkovec's life is I, at the age of 17, I was a senior in high school and I gave my, um, senior presentation was on the importance of diversity in schools. And I went to an all white high school, uh, all white private high school. And I was always very, uh, uncomfortable with that. Like I, mm-hmm. it's embarrassing. I still feel when somebody's like, Oh, where did you go to school in Nebraska? And I say, where I went and I'm like, I'm a little embarrassed because it's very, very, it's not diverse, uh, which comes with a whole slew of other things that go on when, you know, racism and, and just, you know, probably not, not the values that I was raised with. So I went to this all white private high school and I gave my senior talk in front of all of the senior class and a lot of the, the teachers, you know, whatever president of the school about, why diversity was so important in schools. And I was presenting to an all white audience. So (laughs) that's an idea of who I was at 17. So I've always, Mm -hmm. I think had an itch of like wanting to be very, uh, just have a very well-rounded perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, and then as I started to move, I moved to New Mexico, which is a huge Southwest, very Southwest native American culture, very heavy there. I moved from New Mexico to Louisiana, very, very like, like nails on a chalkboard clashing cultures where just like, whoa, totally different, very distinct culture in Louisiana. Um, I've lived in the Dominican Republic quite a bit. I've lived all over the place. And I think the more I move, the more I enjoy just uh, understanding the little nuances and uh, specialties of all the cultures in the different areas of the country. I, I love it, you know, mm. and then, then that expanded to what else is out there. So I went to Australia and New Zealand for five weeks. I went to, Laos and Thailand for five weeks. Um, I visited Europe for a month and a half before I moved there last year. So I've moved to Amsterdam for a year. Uh, was able to see quite a bit while I was there. Um, but yeah, there's just, yeah, it's just like anything else. I'm a generalist to the core. Hmm. I don't want to know one thing. Knowing one thing makes you very fragile. I want to have an understand, a broad understanding of a lot of things so that I can have context in every situation. Mm-hmm. And that's not just in my job. That's in my life. It's in mm-hmm. everything. How is, how is um, connecting with all these cultures uh, contributed to your coaching experience, especially when you work in something like major league baseball, where there are a lot of different cultures, a lot of people who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Do you, does it make you recognize the, human spirit of the athlete you're working with and, the, and maybe some of the cultural um, elements that shape them versus just coaching them as an athlete, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, you, especially, so the Latin American players, baseball is about 50% Latin American players from Venezuela, the Dominican, mostly um, some Colombia and Panama. Uh, but yeah, spending a lot of time there just makes you appreciate, you know, and I don't mean, the thing is, is people say, oh, yeah, I've been to the Dominican, and they're talking about the resort they went to. <laughs> and I'm talking about, like, really spending time in the bowels of that country and understanding, like, this is where they grew up, you know, and not just – it goes beyond just, like, okay, you see the shacks, you see the tin roofs, you see these things, um, dirt floors, bars on the window, and this is the home, right? So they're coming from a place that is, in a very literal sense – not safe 
And this happens to, you know, it's working with inner kids who come from the inner city and are playing sports or whatever. Same concept, except these kids don't speak English and they have about a sixth grade education. Mm. So you really have to spend some time there and elsewhere. Just again, it's like I said, get perspective, going to other parts of the world, learning about other cultures, learning about the opportunities that I've had, you know, working on a third degree where these kids likely will never even have the opportunity to do that. Mm. So yes, it's, it's, to me, it's invaluable. It's like, it's everything. Some people are like, how do you take these vacations? And I'm like, it's not a vacation. It's not a vacation. (laughs) It might seem like that. That's your perspective, but this is like massive growth. This makes me better as a human being, which makes me better as a coach Mm. like that. I don't, you know, I, I could say the same thing about parenting, right? Oh, parenting is such a nice vacation from your job. You're like, huh? Parenting is not a vacation. But I've heard so many parents say parenting makes me a better coach. Mm-hmm. It's just like that. Like for me, it's, it's traveling and, and being worldly and having different perspectives makes me a better coach because I'm just able to, I guess, have more empathy and, again, realize like where I'm coming from and where they're coming from. So in coaching, is it the exploration of your ability to help somebody that, that really attracts you or you fell in love with coaching? That's what, yeah. yeah. Human development. And so why, why have you, why the affinity for um, hitting and, and what is it that brought that out in you? What's in your ZNA? That is a question our sponsor Zenkai Sports has for you. Are you interested in increasing your performance output, helping the environment, and doing less laundry? If you answered yes to any of those questions, please go to ZenkaiSports.com and check out the latest innovation in performance apparel. Zenkai uses cutting-edge technology that repels sweat and other liquids. Zenkai apparel lets the sweat stay on your skin, keeping your cooler for longer and repelling odor-causing bacteria. This means Zenkai apparel can be worn 10, 15, 20 times with no washing required. I would highly recommend trying this amazing product, and I've teamed up with them so you can get 20% off your entire order. Just head over to ZenkaiSports.com and use the discount code LYM20. I don't have an affinity for hitting. I don't have an affinity for baseball. You know, it's just, it's like, the outlet of my passion, Mm. the coaching, the teaching, the interacting with young people and mentoring. My outlet is baseball. The specific move to hitting is, you know, as a, I'm a fiend for like organizational culture. And so as a strength coach, everyone's your boss, you know, like you're, you're not, you might be the boss of the culture for that one hour, but even then you're really not, you're not, Mm. it's Mm. all dependent on the sport coach. So if the sport coach thinks the weight room is important, the players think the weight room is important. Mm-hmm. So I just was running into brick wall after brick wall after brick wall as a strength coach, trying to develop the right culture or trying to get buy-in or, or whatever, fill in the blank, trying to do anything. And the hitting coach was my boss. The pitching coach was my boss. The manager was my boss. The athletic trainer was my boss. The clubhouse manager was my boss. I was having arguments with clubhouse managers over buying high sugar juice and putting it in the clubhouse. And then they're like, well, I'm working for a tip. And so as a strength coach, I'm supposed to be managing these guys weight and asking them to do something. And I've got the clubhouse manager that's buying bad food for them. Mm. So I finally just was like, no, 
Like I, I'm no longer, you know, to a certain point, what I really loved about strength and conditioning was the human interaction and the coaching. I never was the type of person when someone says, Oh, I just love programming, love periodization, love Excel. I never was that kind of coach. It was always the human element of it. That was, that's 90% of my passion. 10% of it is, I guess, weightlifting. It's a personal passion of mine to be fit and healthy and all the things that go into that. Um, but that wasn't why I loved strength and conditioning. Hmm. So to me, I know the rest of the world is like, whoa, this is a big change and whatever. To me, it's the same, it's literally the same thing. Now I'm just teaching the body to do something different and I'm coaching in a different room. Hmm. But the difference is now I'm the sport coach. So I get a little bit more of a say in their mindsets, their culture, like the culture of the, the guys, you know, individually and also as a team, I get a little bit more say in that. And that's like already been a huge breath of fresh air where I'm not combating limited mindsets above me that are Mm -hmm. then changing the mindsets of the players. So what's, what's your strategy for initiating a trust, trustworthy relationship with an athlete where you can get into a place where you can make a difference in their, in their performance? It depends on the age of the player and the situation Trust can come in different forms. Love can be shown in different forms. Um, you know, going to spring training with the Yankees, there was a lot of older players, players that probably I wouldn't even been working with in season because there was older, a lot of older guys, and I'd be working with the younger players. Um, those guys have they're 25, give or take, uh, 22 to 25, let's say. They've been in professional baseball for several, several years. Um, literally, how do I get trust with them. Um, I asked them about their girlfriends and, uh, what their parents do and how's it, how, how their sister is and all that stuff. Like that's how I would develop a relationship there. Cause that's what they probably need. And that's how, what they need to receive hmm. younger players. And I'm talking about like, uh, 16 year old athletes. I actually think the and especially the Latin American players, the best love in some cases that you can show them is providing them structure and boundaries. So they know where they can be aggressive. They can be wild and aggressive and they can do what they want and creative and be an individual within these boundaries that I've set for you. You show up on time, you do this, da, 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 you earn all this stuff. Then, then you can be this. Then we are, then we'll have the conversation. Uh, I just, I think the pendulum has swung in coaching these days of like, we have to develop a relationship, which is true. But how do you develop your relationship with your three-year-old? Do you sit down and talk to them and do you explain to them all of the vitamins and minerals and, and food and why it's good for them to eat? Or do you say you eat your vegetables or you can't go outside and play? That's it. You don't have a conversation with them. You don't have this deep, meaningful conversation to explain why they need to eat their vegetables. You just tell them to eat their fucking vegetables and then they, and the, and then they go, okay, cool. I know, I know how this works. I have a structure. I'm good with mom and dad. You know why? Because I got the rules. Okay. So if I'm playing by the rules, I can do anything I want. I can go outside and play. If I don't play by the rules. Okay. It's like providing structure and, and discipline for people is love, but the pendulum has swung in coaching and parenting probably where we need to be careful of everyone's feelings and that's true. I think that's true, but that's why I said it depends on 
the athlete, how old they are, how far they are into their career, what their past experiences have been, et cetera. And there's a little bit of both. You want to preside, I would say you provide to the older player, it's 80% a conversation and a, you know, Hey, how's your mom doing? How's your sister doing? Whatever. And it's 20%, but we still have these, this structure, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe the structure is more of a conversation in itself for the young player. It's 80%. This is the structure and 20%. How's your mom doing? It's not that they complete, it's a spectrum to me. Mm-hmm. So I can't, I can't say this is how I develop relationships. Mm-hmm. It depends on the, on where the athletes at. And I think the conversation about the young player is not being had anymore. It's very much 80% conversation, individualized, et cetera. And 20% or, or if at all that it's talked about that love and developing a relationship can be setting boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it seems like we've become a little bit afraid of that somehow, and we're not embracing the creation of boundaries and the structure. I, you know, I was curious. Uh, asked a, I've asked a couple of people on this podcast um, this idea of, you know, using training from a mental development perspective versus a physiological development perspective. So, you know, making testing the metal of the athlete, so to speak. And, you know, a lot of sport coaches believe in that, but the strength conditioning sports science community has kind of managed that down and created sort of this structure around it, which it seems to be from what I'm seeing on the internet these days, a bit of a beef of the, the coaching world is that we're, we're, we're somehow making their athletes soft. You know, what's, what's your, I hear in you this sense that you, you, we have to have a greater sensitivity to the, the, the structure that creates the actual uh, ignition switch and then the relational piece that keeps the, the trust growing over time. Is that what I'm hearing for you? Or do you have another thought on that? I don't know the direct question you're asking me, but if I had to err on one side, it's that the recovery conversation um, has gone too far. Hmm. Uh, But I'm also coming from a sport, like I'm not coming from American football, so Hmm. it's different there. Um, Well, I don't know if it's different there or not. Can't really speak to that, but I'll only speak in the sport that I'm familiar with. And a lot of times, and I'm going to quote Tim Gabbett of all people is like, it's not the stress that causes the injury. It's the stress you're not prepared for. So someone said to me the other day, I, I want to know the difference between uncomfortable and dangerous. Hmm. And I said, danger is all relative to preparedness. So, I mean, uh, somebody, a a rock climber or a free solo, free soloer doesn't think what they're doing is really that dangerous Mm -hmm. because they're prepared for it, you know, but the consequences of them failing is death. So it's the only difference, (laughs) only difference, the (laughs) consequences of them, not of of an athlete, not being prepared is injury. But now we're talking about recovery, recovery, recovery. And I'm looking at bodies and athletes that are not even prepared at all. And then we're getting them to recover and forcing recovery drinks down their throat. And I'm like, this guy's 20 pounds overweight and he plays Fortnite four hours a day. (laughs) We're worried about overtraining. Let's worry about sleeping. Let's worry, you know, like this, we're, I just, I definitely would err on the side of being, of all training should be a mental test. Every day, every day. And the test fluctuates. It's not always the highest, hardest test you ever had. But every day, the dynamic warm up, Stu talks about this, and I, I cannot 
preach it enough. The dynamic warm-up should be a very difficult task. And that doesn't mean always physical. It just means it shouldn't be the same thing every day. You should keep the same. Uh, you should, you know, always do lunges, but maybe you do a different variation or always do a skip, maybe do a different variation. But there should be variety over time and variety within the week. So the athletes are having to listen and pay attention. I think everything that we do is mental, like almost literally everything. And it, we talk about this all the time. We always say, oh, it's, it's 90% mental. It's 90% mental. But we spend 90% of our time worrying about if we should do three sets of four or four sets of three. That's the biggest question we got. So, but yet we, we ignore some of the things that are going on mentally with the team. So, I mean, I would err on the side of, I would err on the side of we're not, we're not hard enough on them. And the recovery thing is like, the conversation is way too loud. The, I, the training conversation needs, we need to turn up the volume, the recovery conversation. And once you turn up the volume on the training, the recovery actually gets easier because they're in better shape and they're more prepared. So I just think, again, it's a spectrum and I'm not saying it's nothing is black or white for me. And you're talking to someone who just went back for a second master's degree in biomechanics at the age of 30. So I do think movement is important. I do think recovery, quality of movement, quality of training is important, of course, but we can't ignore the 80% that we all say it's 80% mental. And then we spend 80% of our time behind a spreadsheet. So how, how with the, the mental piece of the game, like I've now we've been talking for a while and I've heard a lot of that layer inside of your, or your sensitivity or your approach. So when you're coaching a player to hit, what is your, what are your focal points? Like, is is it getting into their mind and understanding, you know, how they think about things or where, where their head is at about their, their work or what is, what is your strategy there? Um, just being, uh, I have to be pretty careful about how I talk, just be respectful of the Yankees, but mm. it's, same concept of like the way that we practice within limits. If there's a person who's making major mechanical changes, you have to focus on the physical, you have to slow it down, do more block training, do more controlled environment training. But if there's not making major mechanical changes, then it has to be extremely difficult. So it can't be like the old model of where you just throw batting practice and the batting practice is so easy that guys are hitting eight out of 10 balls out of the yard. Hmm. If you're hitting eight out of 10 balls over the fence, practice is not hard enough because that's hmm. not even close to the real re result that you see in the game, which tells you that if those results really you're successful only three out of 10 times in baseball. And that doesn't even mean that you're really hitting the ball hard. It just means that the ball fell in between players <laughs> and you got on base. So if you're only hitting the ball hard, you know, really realistically, you know, 20, 30% of the time, then that's how practice should be, if not harder. Hmm. What, what drew you to being a catcher and does it, does it, does it affect who you are as a, as a hitting coach now? 
Matrix Fitness produces training equipment that focuses on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike, with equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in the most efficient manner. Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations worldwide. As a global brand with local support, the Matrix Performance Team assists their customers with solutions, research, and training protocols so coaches can focus on what they do best, help athletes prepare for competition, and get better. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Matrix Fitness Canada for the latest updates around the success stories that document what makes Matrix unique as an equipment manufacturer. I'm still a catcher. <laughs> that's, that's, an, that's an identity that I probably wrapped too tightly. Um, I, yeah, just, well, the first thing was that I was just the girl that fit into the catcher's gear when I was young. And then I loved it and kept asking for it. And none, none of the girls want to wear a catcher's gear because they get sweaty and dirty and, you know, and so I loved it. And I just love, um, I love being involved in every play. I loved I loved being the leader. You know, the catcher is the leader of the team, calling the timeout, getting everyone together. Like that is a really, you know, that position is just, I think it's the leader of the team. Some might say it's the pitcher, but realistically the catcher is calling the game. So I, I loved the pressure and that's, that's who I am, you know? Mm. So it's, it would make sense that I would be a catcher. It's True. just, that's how I, yeah, I still, I'm, I'm wrapped into that identity. I'll, I allow myself to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> well, wh- where are you headed? Like, I know you have this job and it's obviously one that uh, you're passionate about now, but I hear in the measure of your words and the things that you're doing, you want to help people and you're already doing retreats and things like that. Where is life headed for you in terms of helping people you want to work more on people's mindset and their, the way they, they live their lives. And is that a sort of a a place that you want to grow into? I don't know what the future holds, but it's, uh, this is definitely a, you know, it's something that I have a lot to learn about and I don't, I'm in no rush to go anywhere. And my, my boss is phenomenal. I have plenty to learn from him and the Yankees. Um, but the highest level of leadership is, is where I see myself. Hmm. Very cool. So what is your internal mission in your viewpoint then? My internal mission. You want me to go more specific? Yeah. Like what do you, what, what do you, when you work with people or what is it that, what, what do you walk away from that's, that inspires you when you've completed what it is you're doing with them? Like you say, you want to help people. What, what, what do you, when you walk away from a relationship working with somebody, what inspires you about that? Oh, just like my pinnacle, my career is probably a player who named his daughter after me, you know, those, (laughs) those are the things that like, and and that particular player hated me when we first met. Um, and we did not, you know, I was, I was giving him structure and he didn't like that. And so, uh, and then ended up naming his daughter after me. And so like, those are the things where I really take pride in that. And, you know, guys reaching out after I got hired as a hitting coach and saying like, you deserve this. And you were such a mentor to me and stuff. Like, those are the things that are, my successes when I walk away from working with a player. Um, baseball and hitting is the vehicle for just human development. It's not, my passion is not about swing mechanics. Mm-hmm. 
So what do you say to a, a little girl that you bump into in the street that says she wants to be the field goal kicker for the your Giants or whatever team that the, she fell in love with? I just try to say, yeah, I just try to say that's awesome and you know, make sure you work hard to achieve that. Like I try to, I would try to plant the seed of like work hard um, and just try to be very supportive, you know, even though it's like I catch myself just because everyone is so natural. If somebody says they want to do something that's really out of the norm, mm-hmm. you go, you go, huh? Like, how are you going to do that? You know, but I'd never say it. I would never say it to anyone. Cause like, who am I to say that to somebody when so many people said that to me and I'm just like, that's great. My initial reaction should always be congratulations on having such an awesome, like just the fact that you thought about it and said it out loud is, is more than most people will ever do in their lives. Last question. How is this time um, that we're going through now kind of, changed you or shaped you uh if it has at all it's changed everything and it's changed nothing mm-hmm. you know i don't i again like when they shut everything down like i'm the same person i don't <laughs> you know I, as soon as they shut things down pretty much i left and went to the desert for two months uh, and stayed in really rural towns in utah and colorado uh which is when i met Stu actually but um, you know, I got out, I was able to travel, be by myself, reflect the, the leading up to COVID to give you an idea. I had been in school for a year, went, moved to Seattle, went to driveline, was working 12 hours a day, six days a week at driveline doing research, hectic time, uh, flying all over the country to interview, speak at conferences, got hired by the Yankees, media, press, people, things just inundation of stuff show up to spring training. I'm learning all the new names, learning the city, learning, you know, and then like COVID hit. And, and I think this is like sacrilegious at the time, but that's okay. I don't mind saying this is like COVID hit. And there's mixed feelings of like, that sucks, but also like, thank God, you know, like, the, whoo, <laughs> whoo, I need a little break. I need yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I need some time to reflect. And not that I would have ever hoped that, but when it happened, I was like, I'm taking advantage of this. I got out, went to the small towns. I was by myself, gave myself mental space, turned off my phone a lot when, when this all first went down. Um, so nothing's changed. I, I operate in the same way. And I don't know, the perspective is, and I've always been grateful for my job and I've always been grateful for the kids. So I don't know, to me, I don't feel a lot different, mm. but we're, we're in it. So mm. I don't know, ask me in a, a year or two. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I will. Well, that was a beautiful conversation. I appreciate you taking some time with me and it's uh, nice to get to know you and hopefully I'll bump into you uh, in real life someday in the future. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.